Okay, listen. Well, Christmas, Christmas time. Christmas, we're in Christmas time. We're in the full throes of Christmas time. And um, what's amazing about Christmas time is uh, when you're little, you think it's a time to get. But really, it's a giving time. And a, really, uh, when you study the scriptures, it's a worship time. For instance, how familiar is this to you? Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. You notice how many times they're talking about joy and being in godly fear and... Uh, Anyway, uh, in great joy, which will be to all people, joy to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with an angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, listen to this, praising God and saying, and I would dare say singing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Notice, here it is, the heavenly hosts, they're praising God. There's an ushering in of praise, something that's come or has been foretold for all these times, the plan of the ages. And we read it and sort of skip over it because we know it so well, but they were worshiping. In fact, Listen to the uh, further down. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Verse 19 of Luke chapter 2. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. And if you skip over uh, to the wise men's story in Matthew, what I'm trying to point out is this is a time of praise. It doesn't matter if you get all the garland up or the mantle decorated or all the presents wrapped on time or whatever it is you're worried about. Number one thing is that we would have a heart response of love towards our Savior. Well, the wise men come from the east and it was after Jesus was born. Remember that. And they come from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he, verse 2 of Matthew, of Matthew 2, who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, listen to this, and we've come to worship him. And we're not going to see the name Christ necessarily tonight. In the Psalms, not the name or the name of Jesus, but you're going to see him there. Oh, yeah. He, he uh, leaps off every page of the scriptures. And so we turn to chapter 77 as we consider all that the Lord has done and planned. And as we read through the scriptures, I recognize that each one of you or each one of us are going through different things. Maybe right now we're on the highest of highs, or maybe for some of us we're on the lowest of lows, or maybe we're somewhere in between. We're just sort of cruising, 
And we can't believe it's December 14th, and it, is it 14th? Yeah, and it happened so quick, and where did the time go? We might be any of those places. But there's several places here in the scriptures where we're told to pause in, in the Psalms. And I think that's appropriate for tonight as we're busy and on the go. Listen to this. Now, what's funny maybe about this or ironic as I've been bringing this to you is the Psalms that we're going to study tonight are not your happy, smiley Psalms. <laughs> they show hearts of people who are in the dust, mostly. Many of them are contemplating, or many of these songs are contemplating the exile and the torn down temple and the darkness and the bleak times and maybe as a society or as people wondering if there's any hope. I mean, you're going to read it here in a second. And <laughs> what breaks forth is a little guy, a little baby. who wise men worship and wise girls worship. So let's jump in. We're in Psalm 77. We're reading a psalm that's to the chief musician. Remember, some people believe that just means to God, but some people believe uh, there really was a chief musician who they're writing to. And there's Asaph, who we've told you on several occasions, was the chief choir director and musician during the times of David and Solomon. But also the scriptures tell us that his songs or psalms were prophetic or are prophetic. And he's got several of them in here. And then we have another one we don't see very often, Jedithan, or however you say his name. He's also mentioned in Psalm 39 and Psalm 62, and he was appointed by David to lead public worship for a time. You can look at that in 1 Chronicles 16 and 25. And what's interesting, isn't this fascinating how, man, it's so cool to put the whole Bible together. The sons of Jedithan, or however you say his name, were porters or doorkeepers in the temple. Were porters. Spurgeon said this, uh, those who serve well, those who serve well, make the best of singers. And those who occupy the highest posts in the choir must not be ashamed to wait at the doors of the Lord's house. How cool is that? Humility and... Uh, Anyway, that's Jedithan and his family. Verse 1 of 77, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. Now, I want you to see something, folks, if you're in the day of trouble. Really see this. Yeah, somebody's shaking their head back there. Somebody's in the day of trouble. So I want you to see something. In the day of trouble... Even though we're to wait on the Lord, what does waiting on the Lord look like? It's active. Waiting on the Lord is active. It's not passive. I sought the Lord, he says. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. In other words, he was persistent with the Lord. Not uh, assuming or uh, 
um, cavalier or disrespectful, but he was persistent. I stretched out my hand, and my soul refused to be comforted. There was something about it. Anybody ever been in that place? You feel like you're seeking out the Lord. You're, you're, you're reaching out. You're, you're stretching out to the Lord. But somehow, some way, your soul refuses to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. In other words, it's almost like he's, uh, the, the, the answer is because why won't you help me? <laughs> By the way, Paul said, I prayed three times to remove this thorn in my flesh, remember? And Paul got an answer that was totally right on point to God, but totally out in left field to Paul. Something's bothering me physically, whatever it is, eyes or back, or, you know, there's all the different theories about what Paul was going through. But listen, Paul obviously was praying for healing, wasn't he? And the Lord answered his prayer, and he said this, my grace is sufficient for you. <laughs> In your weakness, my grace is sufficient for you. Wow, that's sort of a, a, a curveball there, and yet it's the perfect answer. I remembered God and was troubled. The, the implication there is, why won't you help me? I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. You hold my eyelids open. In other words, I'm so weary from crying and hurting. Been there? I'm so troubled that I can't even speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever and will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Now these are the questions, the real questions that we ask when we're in the dust. But many have said this, and you might want to write it down. Never doubt in the darkness what God has told you in the light. And I always say it some, uh, in a different way. When you're confused and hurting and low, and you, you just sort of don't understand, always do this, and I think it goes hand in glove with that saying, always go back to what you know about God. For instance, Warren Wearsby says this in his commentary, will the Lord cast off forever? No, he's faithful to his word, and Wearsby quotes Lamentations 3, 31 through 35. Will he ever be favorable, or will he be favorable to favorable to me uh, and again? Yes. You could see Psalm 30 verse 5 and Isaiah 60 10. I'm giving you the promises in other words. Or actually I'm not. Warren Wearsby is. Has his mercy ceased forever? Because you feel like his mercy has ceased forever. And the answer is no. Look at Jeremiah 31 3. Has his promise failed Forevermore, no. First Kings eight fifty six. Has he forgotten to be gracious? No. Isaiah forty nine fourteen through eighteen. Is he so angry he has shut up his compassion or his tender mercies? No. Lamentations three twenty two through twenty four. In other words, the exercise that we just went through there that 
you know, Warren Wearsby puts in his uh, little commentary, is always when you're in the dust, when you don't know where to turn, when you're confused, when you're sad, you'd, you'd wonder wh- where God is. Always go back to what you know. And what Wearsby just did for you was just take you through the promises of God. Because these are real questions we might ask sometime, but what we know about God is his mercies are new every morning. These are questions that the enemy uses to prey upon your fleshly nature to feel like the Lord has left you out. And, verse 10, I said, this is my anguish. Oh, by the way, by the way, did you notice right after the, uh, verse 9, it says, pause. Consider this. Selah. Pause. Consider this. Think about it. Think deeply about this. Think deeply about the fact that you're telling yourself, God is forgotten. God is not merciful. God's forgotten to be gracious. But the real promises of God say different. And what we stand on are promises. Not what we think. And I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. What does that mean, that you'll remember the right hand of the Most High? It means this, you'll remember the power and the beauty and the supply and the provision that flowed because the one who sits at the right hand in power, that's Jesus, worship him. I will remember the works of the Lord. Not only will I remember the the power, because right hand signifies power, I'll remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Now here, I just got to say it. You got to get a spiritual journal. If you don't have a journal, you really should. In fact, I would bring one to every one of these or somebody who's better than I am. You know, uh, uh, anytime you're listening to a sermon or you're reading the word, have a journal because a prayer will come and you'll write this prayer down. And one of the great blessings of your whole life will be you and I are fickle people. But when we go back and read and we say, oh my, he answered that, he answered that, he answered that, he answered that. It's really a faith building exercise. Here he says to remember the works of the Lord Surely I will remember your wonders of old. Go through the things that God has done for you. But before that, what does the Bible tell us that the works of God, Jesus actually tells us in the New Testament, what are the works of God? (laughs) Really quite simple, to believe. By the way, isn't it funny when you're around Christmas time? Everywhere you go, this cracks me up all the time. This is so worldly. You see all these awesome cutesy crafts, and they just say, believe. And that's the world. They want to believe in something. But it's no good just to believe in nothing. (laughs) There must be an object behind our belief, and that's the Lord himself. Here, we're told, I will remember your wonders of old. And we start... Because we are great, uh, grateful and thankful that the Lord has chosen us to believe and we've responded to that choosing to believe. And Jesus said the works of God, the wonderful work. What is the work of God? The work of God is to believe in Jesus. Have you ever just, you know, been in that place where you're in the dust? Why not try this? Get up off the couch Grab your Bible or your phone with the Bible on it. 
Go out for a walk. Just go around your neighborhood and just read a couple scriptures and just pray for, you know, however long you're walking. Just be with the Lord and just believe. But not believe in nothing. Believe him. Find some promises. We have a promise book downstairs. And start believing and praying the promises. I'll remember the works of the Lord. I'll remember the salvation he brought to my house. I'll remember the things that he did to pull me out of the pit. I'll remember the transformation he made in my mind. I'll remember the way he worked out all those terrible circumstances. I'll remember when there was death, how there was still glory and good things that come out of death. And I'll remember these things, and I'll remember all the little different steps to have, uh, uh, you know, uh, one foot in front of the other and... And, and this place being here, and you people being here, and you know, you have your own stories, but meditate on them, it says here. Meditate takes time, and talk of the Lord's deeds. Go share it with others. Go tell it on the mountain. But go tell it in the skyscraper, and go tell it in the nursing home, and go tell it in the clinic, and go tell it in the streets where you fix water lines or go tell it in the schools speak of the things witness in that way just talk to people and ask them if they want prayer talk to them and tell them how blessed you are and if they ask you why tell them talk of the lord's deeds there's something about just speaking of the lord that fills us up it's really strange we pour out the lord and he fills us up your way, O oh God, is in the sanctuary. Now this is fascinating because he's going to say in the, at the end here his way is a different way. But your way, O oh God, is in the sanctuary. Now think about it. What happened in the sanctuary? Well, that's where the blood sacrifices were, uh, you know, uh, performed. So that God's way is reconciliation and redemption and atonement and the cross that's the way of our Lord, who is so great a God as our God. You are the God who does wonders. Do you believe that? Or do you just putz along in your Christianity? Smiling and doing your thing and putting your money in the box. But no, it's, we serve a God who does wonders. Wonderful things. Only good things for us. Somebody told me tonight one of the worst things that's ever happened to him, he found himself praising the Lord for a couple weeks ago. And I think the implication was he never thought that that could have ever happened before. Because he recognized that God is doing something wonderful and he's working it out, all things. He, you've declared your strength among the peoples, Lord. You have, with your arm, redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. See, do you see how the psalmist has pivoted here? It started in verse 10, and we've gone from being in the dust to not even wanting to speak to the heights of redemption. And he finishes it off by re recounting what happened at the Red Sea. And you're like, well, okay, that's Red Sea for them, but what has the Lord brought you through that's been miraculous? And I know he has. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows so flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up, lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Now watch this. 
Your way was in the sea. Your path in the great waters. In other words, he took them through the Red Sea. But I think of another time when Jesus' path was in the sea. He walked on water. Do you remember that? Of course you remember that. And he called uh, one of the disciples to do it as well. And when he looked away, he fell in. You know something, though, that interests me here? How many footprints would have been upon the sea? None. So I wonder if he's telling us to continue to look up. Look up to the heavens. Look up to where he is, at the right hand, where there's power and there's intercession for us. That's where he is today. Your way was in the sea, a hard place, a tough place, but you also walked on the sea. Your footsteps were not known. Isn't that interesting? You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. He's just recounting the great things that God has done. If, he'd done them, if he's done them in the past, why wouldn't he do them again? So check out Psalm 78. Psalm 78 says, or, or Psalm 78, and as we get prepared for that, I would remind you that the Old Testament, all of it, happened. It's real history, but it's a type and shadow of the fulfillment through Jesus Christ or the reality of Jesus Christ. And this is a contemplation of Asaph. And I would say, this is a song to sing in our homes or song to sing for those who lead our homes. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. Oh, by the way, our Lord quoted that verse in Matthew 13, 35 as a prophecy in the way in which he would teach. I'll open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, or you could say wisdom or psalms or good sayings, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. Now, I think this has two things here. There's this place where you have to be as a dad or a mom, I think. And I think uh, uh, what the rest of this psalm is calling us to is that we would pass our faith down onto our kids. Now, of course, our kids have their own free will. And yet, we're not to leave it up to the kid to decide whether or not they want to be brought up in the things of the Lord. <laughs> I mean, when I was a kid, and probably this week, I'd rather have sun ice cream sundaes every night. But it's not really that great for me. And the best thing for me are vegetables and fruit and good food and good protein, right? And water. Well, here... It said, we're to, we're to tell the generation to come. Uh, verse 5, the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he's done. And we won't hide the story. So we're to tell them their, you know, you know to bring them up in the faith and to train them up in the, the way. But you're also to tell them your story. And I learned this once. I tell you this all the time. I was... When the, my four were little, I was driving them from Green Tree back to our house. It takes us about 30 minutes, and I was telling them <clears throat> how their mom and I dated. 
And I was just trying to pass the time and make them interested and all that sort of thing. And I remember where we were actually on Route 51 when we got done, I got done with the story because it's sort of a short story since we only dated for 17 days before we got engaged. But anyway, I remember them saying, don't stop. Keep telling them the story, telling us the story. Tell us and you know, and I remember talking to my counselor friend a couple days later, and he said, well, yeah, of course they would say that. It makes him feel safe. And I'm like, whoa, okay, I never thought of that. But there's this thing in which the Lord somehow, some way, uses stories and testimonies to bless your kids and to train them up in the way of the Lord. And to tell them your story. So there's this fine line I think I have to walk between TMI and telling them what the Lord saved me out of. So we won't hide them from our children. Telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength. Would you tell your kids how powerful the Lord is? Would you show your children how powerful the Lord is. Because he is powerful. I look through the room right now, just this room right here, and the stories I see of the power of the Lord to bring people from death to life, and I'm starting with myself, is incredible. He's powerful, and he can do it. And it's wonderful work. For he has established, verse 5, a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children. Now, you know several times in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 6. The Lord keeps telling the people of Israel to tell the kids, to tell the children, but not just tell, show. Show the children the strength of the Lord. Show the children the gospel in your home and in your places that you go. Why? That the generation to come might know them. Do you remember in Joshua gets those people into the the promised land? There's actually a, a paragraph. It's one of the saddest paragraphs in the Bible. And it says the next generation didn't believe the Lord. And what they did was they made great conquests, but didn't bring up the next generation. And so here, we're to tell the generation to come. We might know them, or that they might know the things of the Lord, the children who should be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children. You see that? It's really an interesting thing. You're raising children for 18 years So they'll leave and go have their own children and tell them. Now, I don't mean leave. I mean, you know, of course, you're going to be together. But you're, 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 you're letting them fly so that they can go do their thing too. Watch. Isn't this just beautiful? What's the end goal? That your family would set their hope in God. Don't you love that? Their confidence, their trust. It doesn't mean you have to be a perfect family. In fact, the gospel's lived out in the ugliness of life, folks. Things happen. People get in fights. There's grudges. There's unfor- and then, but the gospel says, no, no, no. Come back together. Don't let that fester. Come back together. And, and 
Ask for forgiveness and get back together and see that there's hope in God. Have your confidence in God. See everything through the lens of the Lord and don't forget the works of God, but keep his commandment. I mean, what a privileged responsibility to be a person who's bringing up a young person. (laughs) What a responsibility. And if you've never had kids or don't have kids, don't you fret because the Bible calls you to be a Jonathan or a David. I mean, encouraging other people so that they might disciple. But then the Lord's also calling you to be a discipler, you see. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to get them, not that they're perfect little people and they're moral robots. No, we're grace-based people who respond in love to whatever the Lord has called us to and showing our families and living out in our families that our hope is in God. That's the end goal. It's not that you're perfect. It's that these things are happening. When the rubber hits the road, it's the Lord who does it in your family. And make sure your kids are seeing that and may not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. You see what he's saying here is that he's asking us as parents with the privileged responsibility to show them that there's hope in God or the ones you're discipling that there's hope in God to remove the stubbornness and rebellious out of the generation because that's the history of Israel. But maybe that's the history in your family or maybe that's the history of you. (laughs) That's the history of me. The children of Ephraim being armed and carrying bows. Why Ephraim? Because Ephraim was in the north. Think about it. Most of what's happening in these Psalms through here have to do with the southern kingdom. So he's speaking here of what was going on in the north. They were carrying bows. They didn't keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in his law. They forgot his work and his wonders that he had shown them. Now remember, there were 10 tribes that went that way out of 12. Families, you getting this? These tribes were made up of families. This Bible, God used families and stories of families to bring about the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? And you're part of the drama, (laughs) the grand drama that's happening right now. You're part of it. We're part of it. Marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers, verse 12, in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoar. He divided the sea, made them pass through it. Look at this. You, you could actually do a Bible study with your family right here. All you would have to do is <laughs> go down here and figure out in the Bible where these things are and why God put them in this um, uh, psalm. He's telling you about how um, they were stubborn and rebellious and murmurers and complainers in the face of grand miracles. I mean, parting the Red Sea didn't do it for these people, folks. I mean, come on. As soon as they get out there, right, there's things that happen like, we're thirsty, you're not going to provide for us. That's what he's telling you right here. 
He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He brought streams out of the rocks and caused waters to run down like rivers. Right in the middle of this wilderness, this desert. If you've ever been there, you know that's a miracle. But they sinned even more. Think about it. The miracles didn't do it. By rebelling against the Most High in the wilderness, they tested God by asking for the food of their fancy. You catch that? Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock. That happened first in Exodus 17, so that the waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can he give us bread also? Can he provide meat for his people? And you know that story. I mean, God's given manna every day, every day, every day, every day. And they get mad. Think about it. I mean, manna was falling out of the sky. And they're mad. So they want quail, don't they? They want meat. Well, watch what happens here. The Lord heard this and was furious, 21. So a fire was kindled against Jacob. And anger also came up against Israel because they didn't believe in God and didn't trust in his salvation. They didn't think he could save. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, rained down manna on them to eat, and gave them of the bread of heaven. By the way, he was faithful day after day after day. Men ate angels' food. He sent them food to the full. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust. God sent quail to satisfy their lusts. Feathered fowl like the sand of the seas, and he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, so they ate and were filled, for he gave them their own desire." Lust always eats you up. What happened? They ate so much that it started to come out of their nose and they were sick and they were dying and it was awful. God gave them over to what they wanted and it was the worst thing ever. And God's reminding us this and he's asking you and I as parents, if we're parents or disciplers, to remind those who were teaching that when we lust after things, it can be the death of us. They weren't deprived of their craving, 30, but while their food was still in their mouth, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. Now watch this. Can you hardly believe it? In spite of this, they still sinned. And he didn't believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. When he slew them, then he sought them. Well, that's just human nature, right? We saw it after 9-11. What happened after 9-11? Church is totally full, two weeks. And I'm telling you, it was only two weeks. People come around when there's tough things. But what about just life? They returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock. And the Most High God, their Redeemer. Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth. And they lied to him with their tongue. Oh my. What a sick place to be. But that's what a sinner is. Boy, I've felt that in my life many a time. Smiley, smiley, smiley. Cunning, cunning, cunning in here. But he, watch this, do you need verse 38? Do I need verse 38 or what? In verse 39, but he being full of compassion forgave their iniquity and didn't destroy them. 
Yes, many a time he turned his anger away, and he didn't stir up all his wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh. Now watch. (laughs) I got to quote Spurgeon again. Listen to what Spurgeon said about this. How gracious on the Lord's part. How gracious on the Lord's part to make man's insignificance an argument for staying his wrath. Did you catch that? How gracious on the Lord's part to make man's insignificance or weakness an argument for staying his wrath. The Lord won't snuff out, you know, a smoking can or wick, you know. He won't bruise a tender reed. (laughs) For he remembered they were but flesh, a breath that passes away. And does not come again. And now when you look in verses 40 through 53, it's just again, they forget what happened in the plagues and in Egypt. They forget all about it. And 54 through 64 recounts the sins that took place when they got to Canaan, into the promised land. For instance, look in verse 58 and 59. They provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. And God heard this. He was furious. So watch this. He forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. You remember the tabernacle used to be in Shiloh. But because of all the things that they were spiraling out of control into, the northern kingdom was sort of where things were set up initially for Israel God dealt with it, and Philistines overtook the tabernacle, killed the priest, and captured the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel 4 in Shiloh. You see why you could do a Bible study on all these different movements, and you can apply it to you and your family. That we are to stay away from carved images or high places, the things we make high in our lives, higher than the Lord. And you could go on and on. Uh, and he, he does do that and finishes out the psalm recounting the histories of Israel. What a privilege it is to know the Old Testament and the New Testament. To know it, but not just know it, to obey it. And to have people in your home or in your place of influence watch you walk the walk not just talk the talk. Because they will listen. The word of God is powerful. Faith comes by what? Hearing, but not just hearing. Hearing what? The word of God. So we do, we practice and say and talk about the word of God, but then we do the word of God. And give our people of influence, our circle of influence, hope. Set them up in hope. Don't you want to do that? Oh, man. How about Psalm 79? A funeral song. (laughs) Because the Babylonians had just destroyed Jerusalem in this psalm. And it's a psalm of Asaph. And you know who he is. He's the choir director. What's interesting about this is Asaph and the Babylonian exile sort of don't match up in time. So some people believe Asaph here is just a name for whoever the choir director is. 
Some people don't believe it talks about the exile. I'll let you be a Berean on that. O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance, your holy temple they've defiled. By the way, in our world, we're the temple now of the Holy Spirit or the presence of God. And people had come in and defiled the temple. If it's the Babylonians, well, you see how that happened. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants, they have given as food for the birds of the heaven, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. By the way, let me point out something right here. The Jews are called saints. And that's important when we're talking in Daniel. Because I believe the rapture happens before the tribulation. Many people in Daniel say, what are you talking about? They're talking about the tribulation and you see the saints right there in the middle of it, so it can't be a pre-trib rapture. Well, the Jews are called saints, and there's one place where they are, right? Anyway, their blood they have shed like water. You're all like, uh-oh, uh-oh, controversy. But anyway, uh, shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. Watch this. We've become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. And then the questions come. We've done the idolatry and not following the Lord. We've become uh, defiled and destroyed and a derision or a reproach. Then watch this. It's amazing. Then we go, Lord, how long is it till you help us? I can't believe you're not helping us. When we've been, they've been good over, given over to the consequences of their sin. But anyway, they keep praying, will you be angry forever? Will your je jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you. By the way, he did do that. If you've been studying with us in Daniel, what did he do? He poured out his wrath on the Babylonians by the Medes and Persians. And that happened in one night, the handwriting on the wall story. And on the kingdoms that do not call on your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. Now, here comes the plea to save them. Don't remember former, former iniquities against us. So funny, isn't it? So funny. When it's somebody else, get them. I can't believe that person's doing that on TV. But when it concerns us, oh Lord, hold back your, your wrath and give us mercy. Don't remember former iniquities. Let your tender mercies come, for we have been brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation. Now watch. This is very important. Here is the purpose of prayer. Do you want to know what the purpose of prayer is? Look in John 14, 13. Jesus tells us what the purpose of prayer is. The purpose of prayer is to glorify God. So when you're praying... It's right and appropriate to say if it glorifies you. Now, there's some people in the Christian world that says that's a lack of faith. Well, that's a lack of not reading, in my opinion. Because the Bible clearly says that when we're praying, it's appropriate to say, for your glory, Lord, if it's for your glory. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. And deliver us and provide atonement for our sins. For your name's sake, why should the nation say, where is their God? For your name's sake and for your glory, 
Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants, which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those who are appointed to die. Uh, and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom, their reproach, which with they have reproached you, Lord. That's interesting. He's concerned about the glory and the fame of God, not his own, whoever this is. So we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. Now I gotta say, when I look at Facebook, I don't see that mission on Facebook. What I see in social media is, you thinks differently than me, I don't really like you. You've done this, don't like you. What about this? We'll show forth your praise to all generations. That's what he's called us to do. Here comes Psalm 80, a way in which to restore Israel to the chief musician set to the lilies. A testimony of Asaph, a psalm. And that's really cool because this is a melody that's in several of the psalms, this lilies melody. Okay, give ear, O shepherd of Israel. You who lead Jesus, or Joseph like a flock. Joseph is just the name this time for Israel because... You know, remember, he was well-loved by his dad. And they became sort of big and powerful. You who dwell between the cherubims shine forth. Now, what does this evoke in your mind? Do you know? What do we say? Yeah, mercy seat, where the cherubim came and they almost touched, right about the mercy seat, where they would sprinkle the blood made of gold and wood, humanity speaking. And that's where... God said he would meet with Moses. And then here's something that's really, really amazing and touching. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come and save us. Now most people believe what's happening here is this is a psalm that's coming out of Jerusalem, which is the southern kingdom. Now watch. And some tough things have begun to happen to southern, the southern kingdom. You know the story from Daniel in 605 B.C., in 597 B.C., and in um, 586 B.C. You know all those tough things uh, that were happening there for the southern kingdom. But when bad things happen... If you'll let the Lord do his work, watch this. This psalmist was concerned for the people in the north who had already been sort of wiped out. And really, if you were living a worldly life, you'd say, well, they deserved it. And they did sort of deserve it. But this person became concerned. And I'm convinced that one of the things that happen when we're going through tough times is we can be a comforter for those who comfort. You ever heard that scripture? Yeah, that's in the New Testament. You can cry with those who need to cry.
cry and you can mourn with those who need to mourn and you can laugh with those who need to laugh and you can hug for those who need to have a hug because you become empathetic and that's powerful to me. This one's praying for the northern people who really, quite frankly, were jerks. But that didn't matter because they deserved dignity and honor because they were God's people. You see that? That's powerful to me. He says, stir up your strength. And he didn't say, come save us in the south. He said, come save us. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine upon us and we'll be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You've fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in great measure. It's the image there is he's, they've been crying so much, even their bread is dripping with the tears. You've made us a strife to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Cause your face to shine and we shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. That's the vine is speaking of Israel and it often spoken of in that way. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared a room for it and cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea, and her branch is to the river. In other words, it spread out, the, the territory of the country spread out. Why have you broken down the hedges, so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? Remember now, God used enemies to chastise his people. And by the way, God will chastise us, and that's not a bad thing, because we know if we receive the chastisement of the Lord, we're his child. What a beautiful thing. The boar out of the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. Return, that's speaking, I think, of the exile here. But anyway, we return, we beseech you, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch you made strong for yourself. It's burned with fire. It's cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. I think this is speaking of the king, whoever the king was at the time. He's praying for the king, but it's also, that's the near fulfillment, but it's also speaking of the far fulfillment of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. That's clearly where the Son of God is now. Upon the Son of Man whom you made strong for yourself. Then we won't turn back from you. Revive us and we'll call upon your name. And I want you to catch that. See, folks, (laughs) miracles ain't going to do it in the long haul. Who loves miracles? I love miracles. We've had miracles here in the church. I love to see them, and you love to see them, and I'm so thankful for miracles. I am. But the only way in which you won't turn back is when you get a picture of what Christ did for you. And that's what he's telling you here. He's saying, now let your, uh, uh, look at the countenance, the right hand upon the man of your, or be, your hand will be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man. Watch this. Then we won't turn back from you. The way in which, you, you know how it is, Lord, if you just get me out of this jam, I'll never do that again. And I'll always serve you. And he gets you out of the jam and boom, right back at it. True? 
But man, when there is a love relationship between you and the Lord, you recognize how terrible a sinner you are. I am. And that I deserve death. Spiritual death. Spiritual separation in the terrors of hell. And that somebody came and died for me and for you. And that if we surrender our life to him, he'll come into our lives by the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And that we have resurrection power and we can have fellowship with God. Now it's not some paradigm or rule following. It's a relationship with the living Lord we won't turn back. Oh, yeah, we'll get off track. We're fickle. We do things. But we're in his hand. And we can keep running back by the blood of his son. It's so touching. Miracles just won't do it. The Red Sea wouldn't do it. How in the world could the Red Sea not do it? Well, it tells you a big thing. It's the blood of Christ that restores us O Lord of God, and his face that shines upon us, that relationship then will be saved. Last one, I promise. To the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, the psalm of Asaph, sing aloud to God our strength. Make joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the lute. Blow the trumpet or the shofar at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. For this is a statute for Israel, a law of the God of Jacob. Now, this is probably a psalm that happened at the Feast of Trumpets. Feast of Trumpets, it's an autumn celebration. The Jews have seven feasts. Four of them at the beginning of the year, in the springtime, and then three of them then in the fall time. And uh, the Feast of Trumpets, it's on the 10th day of uh, fall month, like September, October, for the Jews. It's 10 days of consecration and repentance before God. You've probably heard of it. It's called Rosh Hashanah. It's the beginning of the Jewish civil new year or civil calendar and during this work there's no uh, work or during this celebration there's no work to be done burnt offerings and sin offerings in the old testament were given and brought before the lord and right after it what they were preparing their hearts for were the day of atonement the day of atonement and guess what came right after that, folks? Guess what came right after that? The Feast of Tabernacles, where God would supply, and, or God did supply, and they live in booze, and they still do this to this day. It's called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot, or Sukkot. Somebody can say it better than I can. Anyway, why am I telling you all this? Because it's probably happening at the Feast of Trumpets at the time of the new moon. For this is a statute of Israel, a law of the God of Jacob. This he established in Joseph as a testimony when he went throughout the land of Egypt, where I heard a language I didn't understand. I removed his shoulder 
from the burden by getting them out of Egypt. His hands were freed from the bastards. You called in trouble and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. That's where God miraculously gave the water to a complaining Israel there in Exodus 17. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you, O Israel. If you will listen to me, there shall be no foreign God among you. Now watch. Nor shall you worship any foreign God. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I'll fill it. This is a beautiful thing that the Lord is telling these people. Think about what they're thinking. We're in the wilderness. You hardly give us any water. You hardly give us any bread. You hardly give us any meat. There's nothing. You don't do anything for us. And then the Lord says, but remember, I brought you out of all of that. And you need to know my nature. And my nature is to fill you up to overflowing. Open your mouth wide. But my people wouldn't heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me, so I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me. I want you to circle listen right there. That Israel, or excuse me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue her enemies and turn my hand against her adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would endure forever. It's authentic when the Lord comes into your life. It's authentic, and watch this. When we authentically come to the Lord, and surrender our lives to God. You know, many people come around and they think it's like Santa Claus. You'd be a good little boy and you're gonna get some good stuff, but you're not good, no way. But we don't really understand the Lord, I don't think, and his character and nature because he would have fed them also, watch, with the finest of wheat. And with honey from the rock, I would have satisfied you. This is only one of two places. The other place being Deuteronomy 32.13, where it speaks about honey from the rock. It doesn't really explain it to you in the Bible. We know that when he struck the rock, water came out, but could have honey come out? And that's the point. Instead of being a good little boy to get... <laughs> or a good little girl to get, here's what I think the Lord's trying to tell you and me as he's calling on us to believe. Here's what I think he's saying. I'm better than you could ever imagine. I would have given you finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. But you never asked. What happens in the book of James? You have not because you ask not. In other words, what I think the Lord's teaching us here is our vision and our sights are limited. 
And instead of trusting him, we sort of all the time just sort of ask and say, this is what we should do and can do and must do, Lord, and here it is. And I think sometimes the Lord's up here with us, thinking and wondering and knowing that we could have more and go farther, not in some weird materialistic way, but for him, for the Lord. Look with me, and we'll close with this, at Romans 8, okay? Two scriptures I'm going to take you to. Romans 8 is one, and Ephesians 3 is another. Go to Romans 8, and let's look at it with our own eyes, and let's believe it. Let's believe it when we get sick. Let's believe it when our jobs aren't going the way we wanted it to. Let's believe it when somebody's not acting appropriately around us or in our lives. Verse 32, chapter 8. Let's believe it no matter what the circumstances are. He who did not spare his own son. (laughs) That one gets me. But delivered him up for us all. He wouldn't spare his own son. He delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's the sort of God we serve. The sort of God we serve is a giver. Sitting on the edge. Wanting to bless. We ask not. So we don't receive. Our sights are here. He wants to give here. We want water. He's got honey and water. We open our hands. He says, open your mouth and open it wider. I'll fill you up. If I gave you my son, I'll give you anything that's good for you. I'll give you anything that's necessary. I'll give you anything according to my will. Now one more. Ephesians chapter 3. Go there. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul, man, he knew. Wow, can you imagine the weight you must be carrying as you come face to face with the Lord on the road to Damascus and recognize that you've been a murderer of his people? You've been a religious freak who was well-trained and very arrogant and pompous and you're walking on the road to Damascus and you recognize before a holy God that you've been killing his people. And you get out there and you're wondering, I mean, do I know what to do? How do I do it? And then the Lord sort of sends a, a friend, the son of encouragement, to just believe in him and just prop him up and help him go around the ancient world and and, and share and be beaten and shipwrecked. And the one that gets me, I can't do this one, is bitten by a snake. Oh, man, bitten by a snake? No way. Just trying to start a fire. And get bit by a snake. You're in the water, all this sort of thing. But he came to this place, and this is what I want you to see, and we'll close. Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, not us, it's the power that works in us, resurrection power. And then when we recognize that, to him be the glory or be glory in the church by Jesus Christ, notice, to all generations, forever and ever. 
when I go back to Psalm 81, I go, wow. Here's also why I go, wow. Because <laughs> see, I think the Feast of the Trumpets is the picture of the rapture. The atonement, the fires of the tribulation, and the Feast of Tabernacles, the millennial reign, the new heaven and the new earth, and coming down, and he dwelling with us forever. And when you think of it that way, you go, wow, that's beyond all I could ever ask or think. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do thank you and uh, Obviously, Lord, we're just so thankful of all that you've done and accomplished and will accomplish in the future. And Lord, you have big things for us. And those big things might be a prayer ministry that nobody ever notices. We're serving people who are marginalized like orphans and widows. And it never being on CNN or in the papers or anything, but in your eyes, Lord, it's big and huge. So, Lord, I pray you would give each one of us what we should be doing, how we should be serving, what gifts we should be exercising as you give to us, and how we are to be equipped to do these ministries. I pray all this in Jesus' name. And everybody says... Amen.